Welcome back to Parkside Green's Bible Study. I'm Pastor Steve joining you this week as we study Jesus on trial. And trials have always fascinated people, going back to the ancient trial of Socrates and the late medieval trials of Joan of Arc, uh, Martin Luther, Galileo. I think here in the U.S. we often think about the Salem witchcraft trials, uh, the, the O.J. Simpson trial, the, the impeachment trials of Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, trials can be dramatic, right? That's why they're often portrayed in films like to kill a mockingbird or a few good men or on a much lighter side, legally blonde. <laughs> but there's really nothing light about the most important trial in history, the trial of Jesus. And we're going to study Jesus on trial this week as portrayed in the Gospel of Luke, guided by three headings. First, we'll see Jesus mocked and beaten, chapter 22, verses 63 to 65. Secondly, we'll see Jesus questioned and accused, chapter 22, verse 66 to chapter 23, verse 12. And thirdly and finally, we'll see Jesus guiltless and condemned in chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. So Jesus mocked and beaten, Jesus questioned and accused, Jesus guiltless and condemned. You remember we left off last week with Peter. He was out in the courtyard denying any association with Jesus. And Jesus was being held in the high priest's house. So now Luke gives us some additional information about what was going on with Jesus as he was held there in the high priest's house. And it, it's some painful information. Because what we learn is that the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. In a sense, it's no surprise because earlier in Luke 18.32, Jesus had told his 12 disciples that when they got to Jerusalem, he would be mocked and shamefully treated. But still, it's painful to think about God in the flesh being mocked and beaten. Uh, we don't know if they used jabs or hooks or uppercuts, but it says they beat Jesus that hurts, and it naturally gets a person's blood flowing, too. I mean, who knows exactly what feelings surge through Jesus, fully God and fully human, as he underwent this ordeal. Whatever he felt, we know that Jesus exercised amazing self-control. And then they added insult to injury by engaging in a cruel, brutal game of blind man's bluff. They blindfolded Jesus, hit him, and then taunted him by saying, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Right? If you're really a prophet, surely you know who just hit you. I think the irony here is that the one who's blindfolded, Jesus, actually sees. He sees the purpose of this mocking and beating as part of God's plan to save sinners, the very sinners who are assaulting him. But the ones who think that they see are actually blind, right? They're blind to the fact that it's the Son of God, it's their creator, it's the one who will someday sit on the throne of judgment against them. That's the one they're mocking and beating and blaspheming. And of course, they're violating Jewish law by beating Jesus before he's been proved guilty in a trial. Things are clearly out of order here, aren't they, as Jesus is being beaten and struck repeatedly before he's even questioned and accused. Which brings us to our second section, Jesus questioned and accused. 
As soon as day came, we're told, and a trial could be conducted, uh, representatives of the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling religious court of Israel, they gathered together. And that included the elders, chief priests, and scribes. And they led Jesus away to their council, where the full 71-member Sanhedrin normally would assemble in a meeting room. It was there in the temple, a place called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone, where they typically sat in a kind of a semicircle with the high priest at the center. And their first question for Jesus is very straightforward. If you're the Christ, tell us. I mean, that was a key issue, whether Jesus thought of himself as the Christ, the Messiah, or not. Now, of course, Jesus was the Messiah, but not the Messiah they expected. So Jesus answers by saying that even if I tell you, you'll not be convinced, you won't believe, and even if I asked you, you're not going to answer. Jesus' words will not convince them, because we know already back in chapter 19, they had made up their minds to destroy him. So they're not looking to learn from Jesus, they're looking to condemn him. But Jesus' actions will prove in the end who he is. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Whoa, Jesus, I think, is pointing them back to, to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Ancient of Days gives to one like a son of man an everlasting dominion, an eternal kingdom. That's who Jesus is. And the Jewish leaders seem to get what Jesus is implying from Psalm 110, verse 1, about sitting at God's right hand. And that's why they follow up by asking, are you the son of God then? Do you have a unique relationship of equality with God? Jesus seems to deflect responsibility back on them by answering, you say that I am. Like the fact that they have Jesus on trial shows that they think he is a dangerous pretender who claims to be the Christ or the Son of God. And at that point, they seem to feel like they have enough to condemn him, that they've heard it from his own lips. But the Jewish Sanhedrin at that time was not authorized to carry out an execution. So the whole company of them, that's around six dozen men or so, brought Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate, in an attempt to get Pilate to order Jesus' death. Now, it's probably still early in the day, because we know that Roman officials typically met with the public only between sunrise and noon, and the Jewish leaders just launch right into their accusations against Jesus, telling Pilate that, uh, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Right? You notice the shift here. The Sanhedrin's earlier religious condemnation centered on Jesus not denying that he was the Christ or the Son of God. But that was of little concern to Pilate and the Romans. So the Sanhedrin now shifts their accusations against Jesus to three political charges. Number one, Jesus was misleading the nation of Israel, probably insinuating that Jesus was leading Israel away from loyalty to Rome. Number two, Jesus was forbidding Israelites from giving tribute to Caesar. Now, that was clearly a false accusation in light of what Jesus had said just a few days ago, recorded in Luke 20, about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
It's a flat out lie. It's following in the steps of Satan, the father of lies. And then the third accusation is that Jesus said that he himself is Christ, a king, implying that Jesus as a king would be directly challenging the authority of Caesar. Well, Pilate picks up on that last charge and he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, you have said so. It seems to be an indirect affirmation, but Pilate finds no threat in Jesus' words. We know from John 18 that uh, Jesus had clarified by telling Pilate, my kingship is not of this world. So Pilate announces to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's first official verdict is Jesus is innocent of the charges brought against him. Jesus has committed no wrongdoing under Roman law. But the Jewish leaders urgently say that ah, Jesus is stirring up the people, perhaps like he's inciting civil unrest by his teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee right here to this place in Jerusalem. Ah, when Pilate hears the mention of Galilee, he thinks he might have a way out of this sticky political situation, this standoff. See, since Herod had jurisdiction over Galilee, and Herod conveniently was in Jerusalem for the Passover or Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, maybe Pilate could get a, a second opinion or shift the matter a little bit out of his hands and into Herod's. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Now, this meeting, it was a first-time meeting between Jesus and Herod, was a big plus for Herod. It made him very glad because Herod had heard about Jesus and he had long desired to see Jesus, hoping that Jesus might do some sign, almost like a, a personal performance by Houdini or David Copperfield. But as Spurgeon notes, the Lord never worked miracles to gratify idle curiosity like that of Herod. So when Herod, the, remember, he's the adulterous murderer of John the Baptist, when Herod Antipas questioned Jesus at length, plied him with questions, Jesus made no answer. This despite the fact that the chief priests and the scribes were vehemently accusing Jesus. We can almost picture the spit flying out of their angry mouths, can't we? But Jesus remained silent. Just as Isaiah 53, 7 prophesied hundreds of years earlier that he would. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Herod, like Pilate, found no basis for charging Jesus with a crime, but that didn't stop Herod and his soldiers or his bodyguard from taking the opportunity to treat Jesus with contempt and mock him. They ridiculed Jesus by arraying him in splendid clothing. Apparently, they put a, an elegant, shining robe on him, the kind of robe that would be worn only by kings, as a way of mocking him as a pretender king. Herod had a little fun at Jesus' expense. He, he makes a joke out of him before sending him back to Pilate with really nothing against him. As Leon Morris said, with Jesus, the Son of God before him, Herod could only jest. It's interesting, isn't it, that Herod and Pilate had been at 
enmity with each other before this, but on Good Friday, they became friends or political allies in their mutual dismissal of Jesus. We've seen Jesus mocked and beaten. We have seen Jesus questioned and accused, and now we will see Jesus guiltless and condemned in Luke 23, verses 13 to 25. Once Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, Pilate calls together uh, the chief priests and the rulers and the Jewish people, and he sums up the case. He says, listen, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. But after legally examining him before you in your presence, behold, I didn't find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, who sent Jesus back to us. Right? The two officials in charge agreed. Jesus was innocent. I mean, even with unbelievers judging Jesus, they could not prove anything against him. So Pilate says, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I know you want Jesus dead, but he hasn't done anything deserving death. So even though Jesus is innocent, how about this pragmatic compromise? I'll punish or flog Jesus before releasing him. That, that should satisfy you, but it doesn't. The, the leaders and the people gathered there all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas who Luke explains was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Now, Pilate customarily released one prisoner at the Passover annually, and he proposed to release Jesus because he knew he was innocent. But the people wanted Barabbas released instead. When given a clear choice between a holy righteous man and a murderer, they chose the murderer. Peter says in Acts 3.14 to people in Jerusalem, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, running loose in your streets. Now, of course, Pilate realizes that an imprisoned insurrectionist and murderer is a much greater threat than an innocent Jewish rabbi. So Pilate addressed the Jewish people and leaders once more out of his desire to release Jesus but he just could not drown out their shouts of crucify, crucify him. So a third time, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt in him deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But the crowd was urgent in demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Pilate caved in. To their demands. And what a legacy that earned him, right? Think about every time that Christians recite the Apostles' Creed, we recall that although Jesus was innocent, sinless, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate clearly had some concern with justice and pursued it to a degree, but in the end, he was more concerned with crowd control. For him, pacifying the people that were gathered on Good Friday trumped the pursuit of actual justice for Jesus. Though Pilate had three times declared Jesus to be innocent, not guilty, he delivered Jesus over to the will of the crowd. Political expediency ruled the day. 
Only as Bible readers, we know that God's sovereignty actually ruled the day. Right? In his second book that he wrote to Theophilus, Luke records the early church's prayer in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, that truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And part of what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place was that Barabbas, a guilty man, would go free while Jesus, an innocent man, would die. And in Barabbas, I think we can see a picture of ourselves. Think about it. On the morning of Good Friday, he started the day in prison and facing death. But by the end of the day, he was enjoying freedom and life because another man was chosen to die. Spiritually, that's true for us. As sinners, we are in a spiritual prison. We're unable to free ourselves. We're awaiting the just punishment that we deserve. But because Jesus, an innocent man, died in our place, he willingly got what we deserved. And by God's grace, we who trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we get spiritual freedom with no worry of eternal condemnation. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In Revelation 1.5, John describes Jesus as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And in John 8.36, Jesus himself says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, in closing, let's think about four possible applications from our passage. There are many others I'm sure you'll work out in your small groups together. Number one, Thank Jesus for enduring mocking and beating on our behalf. Number two, praise Jesus as the sinless Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Thirdly, don't cave in to sinful human pressures as Pilate did with Jesus. And fourthly, praise God that Jesus' unjust sentence actually fulfilled God's plan of salvation. Jesus is not a powerless victim here. He is a powerful victor. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. God, our Father, we thank you for what Jesus endured on our behalf, including cruel mocking and painful beating. We praise Jesus as the sinless Christ, the glorious Son of God, the loving, the glorious Son of Man, and the loving Son of God. While we may look down on Pilate, Lord, we know that we're also susceptible to cave in to sinful human pressures, to do what's easy, instead of what's hard, maybe just to keep the peace or protect our position. 
Give us courage and strength in such moments, we pray, to do what is right. And finally, we praise you for your great wisdom that in the midst of all the injustice done to Jesus, you were accomplishing your purpose to bring salvation to your people. Through Jesus, we thank you. Amen.